There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tom Bernard Show with co-host Catherine Brandt, Andy Brandt Bernard, and Mike Molina. And we'll be right back. We've got a caller. We've got a special guest this hour. We've got all kinds of news. We'll be right back, Tom Bernard Show. Due to the billions of marketing dollars spent by Walzer Automotive on Tom Bernard Podcast, you hopefully know that Walzer sells cars. What you might not know is that they also have two full-service collision repair centers in the Twin Cities. They're fully certified by all insurance carriers and can help you navigate all the paperwork if you ever have an accident. But wait, there's more. They've also been in the paintless dent repair business for nearly 30 years and can take those pesky dings out for just a fraction of what traditional bodywork costs. Broken windshield? Walzer Collision is a fleet of full-service mobile glass repair trucks as well. Walzer are pros at body and glass repair, but don't take my word for it. They have an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau and a nearly perfect 4.8 Google rating. Check them out at walzercollision.com. Michael Bryant, Brad, Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Well, basically, we're trying to represent people who have been hurt then talk to them before they talk to an adjuster. Uh, one of the key points is to make sure you know what your rights are before you start talking to the insurance company and they start asking you questions or they try to settle your case early and cheap. Well, what's interesting to me is, you know, a lot of people have fear of attorneys. It makes them very uncomfortable. They get nervous about it. What should I do? I've known Michael for years and years now, and I would highly recommend you. So that should be good enough for everybody because I don't endorse people who are dirtbags. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, but I guess the key is, is people think I'll charge them if I talk to them. Right. So a lot of people call me up. It's like, how much is this going to cost if you call me back? Like, you want me to call you back? How much will that cost? I don't charge people. The only way I get paid is if we recover, um, if we get money from the, the other side. And there's a lot of people I talk to that I never get paid for that are just part of giving them advice to make sure they know what they can do and what their rights are. And your record's terrific as well, we should point out. Well, it works. It's been good. <laughs> it's been good, ladies and gentlemen. It's been good. And how do they contact you? At, uh, e- either through our website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com, minnesotapersonalinjury.com, or at 800-770-7008. Michael Bryant, Bradshaw, and Bryant. Isn't that nice? (laughs) Here comes the sun. They must have a huge celebration when the sun does come out. I don't think they do any celebrating, period. Sure they do. It's just not a Russian thing to do. 
No celebrating allowed, is that what you're saying? They're just not happy enough to ever celebrate? The party's over, man, over there. Mr. Molina, do we have a caller? Yes, we have Chris calling from Fairbanks. Fairbanks, like Chris. <laughs> Chris, what, what's the what's temperature up? in Fairbanks, Alaska? What's the, what's the temperature uh, in Fairbanks? Right now it's in the 20s, but uh, we're looking at oh. negative 30 in the next couple of days. So Poo. going back down to normal. Man. Normal? Well, so I, I, moved, I moved up here in 2011, and I got to experience 65 below. <sighs> that was and what was that like? Bad. Um, in- you got to plug in your cars. <laughs> You gotta just yeah. put on a bunch of layers and stay inside. I suppose that is true. Six. What, what did you say? Sixty below? Yeah, it was between sixty and seventy below. Um, the temperature varies quite a bit up here, just because of all the hills and the mountain ranges and stuff. So it's it's tough to say exactly, but somewhere around there. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable. Right now in Minneapolis, it's sunny and thirty-five degrees. Let's see, I got a list of cities by. Um how much sun they see and average in January. Or, well, this is total sunlight hours for January. Uh, Minneapolis, we've, we're actually pretty good. Uh, 156. We're better than Nashville, Milwaukee. Really? Louis, Louisville. Yeah. Huh. Minnesota sees probably, probably, uh, a lot of sun. Probably better than Seattle. I travel there a little bit, and they, it's always cloudy. Oh, well, yeah. That's, yeah. So All the clouds and the rain. Chris, what do you do for yep. a living? I work at a gold mine. That's cool. So a, We're actually having a uh, gold miner on in the third hour. Yeah, in the third hour, we're having a gold miner on. You'll have to call back. That'll be great. Where, where are they at? Where are they located? Um, They're doing a show on Discovery. Uh, oh. Let's see. Fred Hurt. I, I mean, I have a feeling gold miners don't all know each other, but... <laughs> Maybe. Gold Rush Whitewater, series premiere on the 12th. So, okay. we kind of missed that, but... But oh, no, I, I work at a, where is a that? place called Fort Knox. It's about 40 minutes north of Fairbanks. I'm in the lab. I just analyze samples. Uh, okay. Little Squaw Lake, in the Arctic, Arctic Circle. So I don't think you're going there. You're not in the Arctic Circle. Yeah, it's a few hours north. A few hours <laughs> north. So, yeah, but you should call back when they're on and, talk, and schmooze with them about it. So how did you did, – did they get a hold of you and offer you a job? Is that how you ended up in where, – where, no, where did you say you're in Anchorage or Fairbanks? Fairbanks. Fairbanks, yeah. So I, I got, yeah. got kind of lucky. Um, I, I noticed one of the temp agencies in town was hiring for, and they don't name a specific mine, so you have to go through their agency, but there's only one mine that's possible. So um, I saw they were hiring for it, and it was like a temp to hire thing, and I got kind of lucky in that one. So I work four tens, like uh-huh. three-day weekends. It's kind of nice. Oh, that is really kind of nice. And you do, you do what with the gold? You you test test sample it yeah so they'll they'll drill a hole to load with um it's basically diesel and fertilizer to blast a pattern um every hole they drill they send us a bag of dirt and we break it down throw it in a furnace and tell them what's in it um then we analyze samples from the mill throughout the process just to tell them if they're running efficient or what they need to change and all that stuff so yeah it's pretty no salting the mine now do you What's that? You don't salt the mine, do you? No. (laughs) (laughs) No. That movie that we watched, what was that movie where that guy was salting the the samples and everybody was investing in the middle of nowhere? Was it Brazil or something? God, I don't even remember. I have no idea. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. No, we, we, we strive for accuracy, and we're not trying to get fired. <laughs> No, I didn't think you were. So, Chris, in, in Fairbanks, you have your favorite re- your restaurant. You've been up there, you said, what, seven years now? Uh, this August, it'll be seven years, yeah. This August, be, and, and are you a married guy? Do you have children? No, I'm single. You're single. And, and now, are there more women or more men in Fairbanks, Alaska? Uh, there's a lot more men just because of the, the industry, yeah. the pipeline, yeah. and all that stuff. And construction is seasonal, but... Yeah, I think it's like a 60-40 or 65-35 ratio. So isn't it hard to get a date or whatever? Yeah, it can be. I mean, I've got money. I would imagine that's true. Oh, hey, what are you saying about women? Here we go. It's not wrong. I don't like this. I love that. I've got money, so it's not that hard. That's unbelievable. I'm looking at the yearly sun graph for Fairbanks. Yeah. Between April 8th and September 2nd, uh, on average, no night. There's no night at all. How is that, Chris? How is yeah. it to have no night? Well, so it's it's a little weird. Um, there's only, I want to say, a week or two where it's really real sunlight, but then there's a month on either side of that where I think it's called, uh, it's like twilight almost, where you, it, you mm-hmm. don't need a flashlight to see, but it's not sunlight. So it's kind of an in-between. It's weird. That's but you know, people are, I remember listening a while back, and one of your comedians was up here, and um, he said he was at his hotel downtown, and there was people running up and down the river on jet skis at 2 a.m., so it's light <laughs> enough for that kind of stuff. <laughs> I might like it up there. Yeah, Andy probably would like it up there. Go to the store at 3 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, didn't didn't that Iceland like that too? That comedian, I yeah. think uh, there was a. We had just had somebody on whose family owns a couple of restaurants in Fairbanks, uh, Alaska. Oh yeah, Jamie Lasalle. I remember yeah. that. Yeah, Jamie Lasalle. That's exactly yeah, that's who it was. Right. Jamie Lasalle. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Jamie. I remember that. Yeah. So things are good. Uh, you're making a lot of money. You got money. You Cute. go out on dates. You go out to, to Jamie Lasalle's relatives' restaurants. So that's good. Yes, yeah. three happy lights. You have happy lights. Do you have any happy like, lights, Chris? So, uh, no, I usually go to the gym and hit the tanning bed once a week, so I can uh, stay even. A, I mean, I've always been a pretty happy person, so I'm not too worried about the dark. But and then I now, where did get, you grow uh, up? I grew up in Lionel Lakes. Oh, okay, Minnesota. And you you were saying you get to do something? No, yeah, I get to travel a lot in the winter time, so I'm not up in the thirty below. For six months straight. Oh, good. But, um, but I, I went to California last month. I'm going to Miami next week, and I've been to Vegas a few times. So, yeah, good, good for you. No, <laughs> so there are no direct flights from Fairbanks to Miami. I wouldn't imagine. No, no, I got two pretty nasty layovers in uh, Seattle and Houston. I think it is on the way down. Oh, wow. That would make sense. So, how long total? Uh, total in the airport and in the airplane. <laughs> oh God. I think it's going to be close to 24 hours, maybe like 21 hours. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Must be a very tolerant human being. Well, now, do you know people in Miami? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. In Miami? No, I got, a, I got a friend who lives in Pennsylvania. He's going to meet me down there, and we're going to hit a few casinos and card rooms. Oh, okay. There you go. There you have it. You were about to say something? You were about oh, to say no, something. 
No, I just wanted to make sure that, you know, the, oh. you know from Fairbanks, Alaska, the, the connection's pretty, the connection's really good, actually. It's a fantastic uh, connection. So you, yeah, you work, and, you work f- in, in town, it's a, connect, it's a good connection. Once you get out of town, it's not so great. No, I can't imagine. Oh, you know what? Joe from Louisville. So Joe's listening to you in Fairbanks in Louisville, and he said, uh, you need to come to Punta Cana in March with the KQ Morning Show. Uh, I think I burned all my PTO up with these last few trips. So if, if I didn't <laughs> oh, uh, did. run through all that, I might consider that for sure. One of the greatest things is, though, that it would add another, well, the flight's about two and a half hours, so you'd add probably another, you'd go to a, an entire 24 hours of travel. That'd be wonderful. Oh, that'd be so, so much what, fun, yeah. Do you sleep on the airplane then, though? Is that, is that the good part of it? You're, the, the, the eight hours you need of sleep or six hours you need to sleep, whatever it is, you're asleep on the airplane? I generally try and do that. I'll throw a few Advil PM, and I'm, I'm usually out for at least two or three hours of the flight, so it's not so bad. But sometimes I just can't sleep, and, yeah, then it gets pretty rough. No, do you ever come back to Lionel Lakes? I haven't yet. Um, people ask me, and I just... Minnesota weather is just miserable for me. I, the humidity and the wind, and I just don't like it. Um, I would rather have 30 below, honestly, because there's no wind. Really? It's dry, and, yeah, it's not bad. The wind is, the wind chill is uh, yeah. pretty brutal at times. Yeah, the yeah wind I do, you, you, do you still have? Sorry, go ahead. No, I was gonna, go ahead, continue, and I'll ask you the question afterward. No, I, I bet you we get less than 10 days worth of wind up here, so that's nothing. So do you have family uh, still in in Minnesota? Yeah, my parents are in Lionel Lakes. My sister's in Cambridge. I got cousins all over the place. Yeah, and 95% of my family's still in Minnesota. So you never get to see them then? I haven't seen them in a while. My parents are planning a trip up this spring, finally. So I've, I've been trying to convince them for years, but... They're finally going when to is spring? <laughs> when uh, is spring? That that varies quite a bit up here. It's uh, usually April, May. It starts, and it's not even called spring up here. It's called breakup because all the ice on the rivers and the snow and all that stuff. <laughs> That's what it's not spring. It's just breakup. Yeah. Well, well, that makes sense actually. That's fantastic. I tell you yeah. what, Chris. It, it, you know, one thing I love about cell phones, that's the one thing about cell phones that I do love, where you can get calls from uh, Louisville, yeah. Kentucky, and you can get calls from Fairbanks, Alaska, and nobody's spending a fortune calling in. I love that. Yeah, it is nice. It is a Don't wonderful thing. We'll stay. Collect calls or stuff like that. Right. Yeah, exactly. If you get a chance in the third hour, if you're not at work or whatever, uh, and we have the gold miner on, I, I'd love to hear you guys uh, talk to one another. That'd be interesting. Yeah, I'm just hanging out at the gym right now. I'm I'm off today, so I got nothing going on. All right. Well, if you get a chance, call back. That'd be terrific. Right, I'll do that. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Chris from Fairbanks, Alaska, ladies and gentlemen, calling. He's he he samples. Uh, he test samples. Sounds like dirt for core samples. I think they're core called. samples. Yeah. And or it's something to, to like see that. how much gold. Your average ore. Um, I don't know about gold necessarily, but. I think your average, like, copper ore is only, like, 9% copper, and the rest is dirt and rock. So really? So you really need to test. Yeah, yeah, you're not going to be... Um, yeah, they need to know You're not going to be digging up, like, solid metal from the ground. Right, they need to know which direction to drill. Yeah. So, yeah. 
That makes sense. Joe mm-hmm. does point out that another great thing about cell phones is the fact they can listen to this show on their cell phone. Yeah, that, that is, is amazing. It is, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful what the situation is there. I uh, imagine just 30 years ago, the idea of getting a signal from Fairbanks down to Minneapolis and then going to um, Kentucky from there. Uh, yeah, I remember my um, I had an uncle, two uncles, or I don't know, some family members moved up to Alaska to start the pi- pipeline. So this right. is many, many years many ago. Many years ago, yep. And I remember uh, we would um, be... Somebody would call us, the operator would call us and tell us when to be by the phone so that they could call us back from Alaska. So they could clear a line or something weird like that. Really? Because, well, they yeah, probably was... only had like, you know, room for two, maybe not even two phone lines going at a time. Because your average phone line, well, for landlines, I mean, for cell phones, I'm sure it's different, but. Landlines can carry like, I don't know, 60 or something lines at a time. And, you know, there's probably not going to be 60 people on the phone at any given time in most areas. But uh, since the population density is so low up there, they probably only strung a couple lines up there. Probably. I don't know. It was a long, long time ago. And I remember it was a really big deal to talk to somebody in Alaska. Well, it's pretty far away. No, or to... across the ocean. Oh, my God, that was, like, mind-blowing. Oh, yeah, before the uh, pipeline or what, the um, undersea cables were laid. Well, that's what everybody was like. Oh, my God, I'm talking. I am, my voice is going through undersea yep. cables. The it's undersea so cables. amazing. Yeah, they were all excited about that. Andy, yeah. I have to ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Give me your mindset when Andy Brant Bernard has to take a 21-hour trip via uh, air through... Fairbanks. Oh, the complaining. Oh, my God, the complaining. Oh, I wouldn't <laughs> be anywhere be... near him for a month before. Well, the only problem, <laughs> the problem I have with flying is that as soon oh. as we get into the air, I'm, I can't sleep, but I'm struggling to stay awake. So it's like being heavily sedated the entire yeah. time, and it sucks. And I found out why that is. Why? Um, it's because of the way they have to, I mean, they technically pressurize the cabin. Mm-hmm. But it's compared to ground level, it's depressurized to the point where it's the equivalent of being uh, 10,000 feet up. Uh, and that's the low, the oxygen concentration is so low that if you're not uh, acclimated to it, then you just can't stay awake because your blood oxygen drops. Oh. And we, I do not like that sensation. I suppose not. We'll be back. Tom Bernard Show. I'm Brad Huckle, president of North American Banking Company. Ask one of our bankers what they love about business banking. They always say the relationship with a client. Case in point, True North Oral Surgery and Implants is a longtime customer with a growing practice. Their banker, Julie Marshall, knows the ins and outs of what they do. So when they need working capital, an equipment loan, or funds for expansion, they call Julie. Are you looking for a banker you can count on? Give us a call. This is Tom. Why not bank with my banker, North American Banking Company? A better banking experience. Member FDIC, an equal housing lender. Hi, this is Tom. If you spend any time at the lake, you can relate to hanging out on the dock with family and friends. Let Flow enhance your experience with their rock-solid dock systems. You see, Flow's passion to invent a better way to make life easier comes through in every product they make. Flow boat lifts are a breeze to level using a cordless drill with their patented Easy Level system. Flow is about making things easy, meaning you have more time to enjoy being at the lake. Isn't that why you go there in the first place? See for yourself why they've been perfecting leisure time since 1983. 
Visit Flow at the Minnesota Sportsman Show at River Center in St. Paul, January 18th through the 21st. Be sure to ask for the show special where, with a qualified purchase, you'll receive a free three-piece furniture set or free wireless remote. And mention you heard this ad on KQ for an additional $50 off a dock or lift system. To find out more about Flow Systems, visit their website at floeintl.com. Flow Docks and Lifts, a better way. Well, it's interesting you're playing this song because Joe in Louisville says that Andy should have a couple of shots of whiskey before he gets on the airplane. Um, well, Wait, flights tend be to be pretty early. Joe's from Kentucky, wouldn't Bur- it be bourbon? Well, bourbon right. is a type of whiskey. Yeah. It's like all, all bourbon is whiskey, but not all whiskey is bourbon. That kind of thing. It's that deal. So what do you think two shots of whiskey do for you, Andy? Well, considering I've almost all flights are pretty early because I don't know because the world is horrible uh, I would say that would probably be a pretty bad idea because the world is horrible well it's like these people are voluntarily flying at like 7 o'clock in the morning it's like what the hell's wrong with you <laughs> because most people get up at that time well your why? dad I wake up every morning at 3.30 or 4 o'clock why do people voluntarily do this I don't know it was a, it was a stupid mistake I made with my career well, you do it because most people do it because most people wake up at that time. Mm, I we suppose. just all go on strike until the workday starts at 11. That's it. Work, day, work from 11 till 7. Why don't people work from 11 in the morning till 7 at night? That's a really good question. Now, back in the day, I could see they had to work during daylight hours, but... Uh, I think that's really, it's just tradition. So the 9 to 5 thing, I guess. Yeah. That's why they did it. But, yeah, why don't people now work from, like, 11 to 7 or, or noon to 8? Because you can go out to dinner after after work every night, and you don't have to get up until mm-hmm. 11 in the morning. I also want to know why more jobs aren't uh, 10 hours a day, four days a week. Well, like Chris was saying, up in Fairbanks, he works four 10-hour days, and then he has three days yeah. off, which is fantastic. I think most people would prefer that. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right about that. The great Sir Isaac Newton may have revolutionized our knowledge of the world, but he still has blind spots. He was sucked into the great mania of this day, of his day, the South Sea bubble, and lost a lot of money. I can calculate the motion of heavenly bodies, but not the madness of people, he ruefully reflected. In retrospect, he should have pondered the popular saying that he was used to, uh, he, he was used to uh, define his law of gravity. What goes up must come down. Uh, investors in Bitcoin are learning this old truth. The price of the cryptocurrency peaked last month at somewhere over $19,000. There is a very widespread a problem in and of itself. But at the time of writing, around 11 a.m., uh, some exchanges now show a price below $10,000. So if you invested in Bitcoin over ten grand, you have lost a lot of money. Yeah. Saw uh, that coming. Yeah, you didn't buy any of that, did you? No. I knew this was going to happen. Well, what is, I still, to this day, I still do not know what Bitcoin was or is or why people It's an IOU, basically. It's an IOU. Yeah. But who owes you? Nobody, really. That's the problem. So it's an IOU, but nobody owes you. It's like I said, the only reason our money has inherent value is because it's the only way you can pay taxes. That's true. So take away that. It would be like trying to start a... an economy based on, you know, like, 
pounds sterling in America. No one would do it because why would I buy pounds if I could just use dollars, which do the same thing, but they also have the benefit of I don't have to go get my currency exchanged all the time. Well, did, did a lot of people actually go out and buy Bitcoin? I don't think it was anywhere near as big as uh, people are proclaiming. But then who decided it was worth $19,000? I think that's just... I don't, I don't really know, actually. So it was just another scam that was pulled on people? I believe so. It was just a scam, the whole thing. I mean, when you consider the fact that the person who invented Bitcoin has hundreds of thousands of them stored up because before he released the protocol, he did a bunch of mining himself and kept them for himself. It looks pretty scammy. I guess. So did he become very wealthy? Uh, no one really knows who he is. Oh, really? He's kept his identity very secret, probably for... because he's scammed a whole lot of people. Because he's a scam artist. Yes. Perhaps the best way of understanding Bitcoin is through a model of how bubbles operate, the classic model developed by Hyman Minsky, elaborated by Charles Kindleberger, a historian who studied bubbles as five stages, displacement, boom, euphoria, financial distress, and revulsion. The displacement is some technological development that can be used to justify a new era, railways, canals, the Internet, or blockchain. A boom then occurs and drags in more and more investors. At some stage, we reach euphoria, where the boom is widely known to the public, and there is talk about those who made millions from the trade. This stage had been reached in November, when there were uh, adverts for cryptocurrencies on the train and discussions on popular radio programs. In the euphoria stage, people buy because others are buying and because they anticipate being able to sell quickly at a higher price. For a while, this trend is self-reinforcing. At some stage, however, doubts set in. Some people decide to take their profits while they can. Bad news occurs. With Bitcoin, it seems to be reports that authorities in South Korea, where trading has been particularly active, are going to crack down. Once the price starts to fall, the psychology changes. People who bought early and were counting their millions suddenly see a dent in their wealth. And it is worth noting that you are not really rich unless you have gotten into the asset class and out again. Other people may have uh, bought above the current price and are bitterly regretting their mistake. Bargain hunters jump in and temporarily drive the price higher, but it doesn't last. Another question for you at this point, Andy. So when you send your money... Where do you send it? Who do you send it to to invest in Bitcoin? Um, they're, it, they're basically ser saved on servers like online bank accounts. So you just go on, okay, you go on your computer, mm -hmm. okay, and you go where? You just go to Bitcoin.com or wh what is it? There's a ton of places that do that kind of thing now. Trade Bitcoin. Yeah, they all wanted to get on the... Uh, Bandwagon. The fad while it was still profitable. They'll... It'll be like, if you want to buy Bitcoin, you put in how many you want to buy, and then that site will uh, find whoever wants to sell, kind of like an auction house. Okay. And then they'll take a 5% like cut or something, and then there you go. Okay, so you, you, let's say you took $1,000. So that's, that's another problem. Imagine if every time you went to the bank and tried to withdraw money, they took 5% of it. Yeah, think about that. Yeah. I mean, there's you, a lot wrong with Bitcoin. There's a lot wrong with it. Why did people fall for it? Because they saw that it was going up and they thought, wow, I'll make a lot of money. God. But now terrible. that it's going down, there's literally no reason to buy it. 
and that's going to make it go down more and more, and I don't think it's ever going to come back. Yeah, no, but the people that, good. you know, invested or bought it when it was very young and just sold it when it got crazy high, which is, the, if that you're smart, the smart, that's what you do. Yeah, but they kept, they saw it going up so fast, and they thought, well, that... This will never stop, or you know, when it's when it plateaus, then I'll sell it. Yeah. But it didn't plateau; it hit a spike and immediately started dropping, and they started losing money. Everything always plateaus mm-hmm. and goes down. And the problem is, people always <laughs> think the plateau is going to be later than it is. Yeah. So, let me ask you a question about Sir Isaac Newton and the bubble. Um, do, do people like Sir Isaac Newton just assume that everybody is? Not as smart as they are, but uh, they're not that much smarter than everybody else. So they, that's why they believe them. Well, I don't even really know what happened with Newton. Well, it's an interesting story. I, I just, again, he lost a lot of money because he invested in things. Again, let me re- I'll read that paragraph. The great Sir Isaac Newton may have revolutionized our knowledge of the world, but he still had his blind spots. He was sucked into the great mania of his day, the South Sea Bubble. And lost a lot of money. So here, here's what I'm saying. Does a guy like Isaac, now they call that a blind spot here, well, that he had his blind spot. Economic bubbles can collapse for any reason, though. Yeah, no question. But what I'm saying is, does a guy like Sir Isaac Newton, who's a very bright man, just assume that everybody else is somewhat near, maybe not intelligent, as intelligent as he, but nearly as intelligent, and therefore he will invest in things not realizing that these people are just stupid-ass scammers. Um, Who knows? Could be. Maybe. I don't know. It just because you would think, well, he's a very smart guy, so there's no way he's going to fall for something like that. Well, just because somebody's smart in one area doesn't mean they're smart in other areas. Yeah, If you look at uh, people who are like, you know, they can do trigonometry in their head, they can often not do a whole lot else. Well, that's true. I think it's – you can either be – generally smart or you can be like you can be like if your knowledge in things is general you're going to hit like maybe a seven out of ten in you know most fields but if you specialize then you could hit 10 out of 10 but everything else suffers yeah it's like having a computer that's built to do one thing versus a pc that can do a lot of things uh, we have not yet reached the distress stage, but we might be near it. Worries about the security of cryptocurrencies could be the trigger. Wait, we're not in the distress stage after it dropped from 19000 to 10000 Well, I would imagine. It's uh, quite it says a bit we of distress. Be. That's a lot of distress, if you ask me, almost in half. Yeah, that would be like the Dow going down to like 13000 Yeah, that would cause like the economy would be destroyed. Hey, uh, Molina, where, where's the uh, Dow today? Uh, it was down Three again. $3 billion. It was down how much? Uh, just like 20 points, I think, last time I checked. Oh, it was still, yeah. It was I think so it, no big deal. It was still above 26. It is currently 51 points down from open, but it's still above 26. Still okay. above 26? Yes. So 0.2% down, yeah. Worries about the security of cryptocurrencies could be the trigger for another sell-off. At that point, the price could fall as quickly as it rose. and saying goes up like a rocket, down like a stick. Investors may well reflect that Bitcoin had not become a means of exchange for day-to-day transactions, has not proven to be a reliable store of value, and thanks to the proliferation of cryptocurrencies, does not really benefit from a limited supply. As Stephen Englander of Rafiki Capital writes, there are no barriers to entry on the crypto space other than a good story about the niche that your coin is filling. The number of ICOs, initial coin offerings, tells you that it is easy and cheap 
there are big incentives to get in on the ground floor of a cryptocurrency that has even moderate acceptance. So how did this shadow figure get to a point where people start, because even I know about Bitcoin and I had no interest in, in investing in it. How did he get, a, get to a person like me? That now I know about Bitcoin. How did he get there? Well, it's the definition of a pyramid scheme. Yeah. The only way to so make money it. off of Bitcoin is having more people care about Bitcoin. That's literally the only value it has. Right. Its value is directly tied to the number of people who invest in it. So if you get your friend to invest in it, your Bitcoin suddenly becomes slightly more valuable. But how did we first hear about Bitcoin? I guess what I'm saying is how was he so good? We assume it's a man. We don't even know that to be sure, right? Right. It could be a woman, could be a man. We don't know. How did he get the word out there so well? He did a great job, he or she did a great job of getting the name Bitcoin out there. How did that happen? Uh, you'd be surprised. It's been around for a long time. Oh, is that right? I didn't know that. No, yeah. Whenever anything starts rising as fast as that did, it's going to get noticed. Yes, yeah. yeah. I, I had no idea that it had been around a long time, and then all of a sudden it just broke big. Uh so well, he had to offer no proof that it had any value whatsoever, and people still bought it. Well, I mean, it objectively doesn't have value. It's, it was basically originally used uh, as a system for uh, illegal online purchases to be untraceable. Is that so bad? it's like, you know, I, I buy one thing. Oh, it would be like a, a good analogy would be like if people were to use World of Warcraft as their intermediate. Because, you know, there's gold in that game which has no real-life value, but say I wanted to buy something illegal. I go on World of Warcraft, I uh, buy a whole bunch of gold with money, uh, then the person who I'm buying that thing from goes on World of Warcraft, I give him my gold, which he then sells, and then we've just laundered money. So it's all about laundering. Is this a dark web thing? It, Is that where it started? Originally, it was very much about laundering money. Yeah. But then once enough go. people owned it, then it became a, an economy in itself. So basically, people who had stolen from other people bought Bitcoin. It's not about stealing. It's just, it's about, it's just about making it so the government can't see what you just bought or from Ooh, who. That's dangerous territory. Oh, a lot of... Uh, it was basically like the de facto currency that you buy drugs with for many years. Melina, what about your hero, the situation, going to uh, prison for tax fraud? Oh, God. You see that? Nope. $8.9 million. The situation was on... Oh, yeah, that guy. What, what oh, show was that? That was... Um, Jersey Shore. Jersey Shore, Jersey Shore yeah. With, with uh, Snooki and... Yeah, those people. Uh, other people, probably. Well, apparently he's come to a deal where he's going to plead guilty to tax fraud and tax evasion. He didn't even file taxes in 2011. His brother was his accountant, so they're both going to prison, it looks like. I just... How do you think you're going to get away with that? That's what I, I don't understand. We always so think getting that away way. with tax evasion? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a brought down Capone. <laughs> My favorite Italian story is still Joe DiMaggio walking down the streets of San Francisco with two huge bags of money because he always wanted to be paid in cash. I don't want your check. I have no use for your check. Give me the money. It's like when you so go to an Italian down wedding. San Francisco. You know, yeah, we only want cash. There's no registry. grand, small bill. Yeah, yep. I suppose that's true. <laughs> we'll be back. Special guest coming up next, Tom Bernard Show. 
Tom Bernard here. Hey, would you turn down a job that paid you thirty to $60,000 an hour? That's basically what you're doing if you don't attend the SellerWorkshop.com series this month, hosted by the Chris Lindahl team with REMAX Results. In about an hour, you'll learn how to potentially make thirty to $60,000 more on the sale of your home. Chris, why are you giving away the secret sauce? Huh, great question. If you love something, set it free, right? Seriously, I'm on a mission to help people make the money they deserve when they sell their home. Whether it's my team or someone else, the fact is the world has changed when it comes to home selling. Yet, People are still doing it the traditional way and leaving tens of thousands of dollars on the table. It drives you crazy when people do it wrong, doesn't it? I just hate seeing people lose money. At the SellerWorkshop.com series, you'll learn the methods we've developed at the Chris Lindahl team that have made us the number one REMAX results team in the nation. You walk out with all the tools you need to make tons more money on your next home sale, and it's totally free. The Seller Workshops are happening January 29th through the 31st. Seating is limited, and trust me, they sell out fast. Visit SellerWorkshop.com or call 763-401-SOLD. Tom here for Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning. When you call Sabre for service, you'll get a certified technician that's an expert at diagnosing, repairing, and installing heating and air conditioning equipment. Sabre Techs give you the service you need, not the other stuff that you don't need. When you combine that with Sabre's A rating for customer service and the best equipment from Bryant, you get exactly what you need. So make the call to Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning today. Sabre and Bryant, whatever it takes. Listen to you, Melina, trying to be clever. He's trying to be clever, ladies and gentlemen. It worked. Kate Winkler Dawson. Hello, Kate. Hi. How are you today? I'm doing well. Glad to hear it. Death in the Air, a true story of a serial killer, the great London smog, and the strangling of a city. Our guest, Kate Winkler Dawson. What is it about London and serial killers? What is that all about? <laughs> oh, you know, this guy, Jack the Ripper, I think might have started it all. Um, you know, I think it's um, London is this um, amazing city that people have been fascinated by. But it's also lends itself to, you know, really a creepy atmosphere with the fog and Gothic buildings and Victorian homes. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that you know, frequently cities that are cosmopolitan and, and really um, have some amazing offerings also have a darker side. And I think people are fascinated with London's darker side. It is amazing. In the winter of 1952, London automobiles and thousands of coal-burning hearths belched particular, a particulate matter excuse me, into the air. But the smog that descended on December 5th of 1952 was different. It was a type that held the city hostage for five long days. Wow. Mass transit ground to a halt. Criminals roamed the streets. 12,000 people died that same month. There was another killer at large in London. Uh... Kate Winkler Dawson captivatingly recounts the intersecting stories of these two killers and their long-standing impact on modern history. So explain to me again. So, so this smog that descended December fifth, nineteen fifty-two. What was that all about? Yeah, five days. Ugh. Yeah, I know it was an incredible amount of time. So you know, London for hundreds and hundreds of years was known for its fog, which inevitably were smog because. Um, the city, um, as it grew from medieval times, the woods were cut down, and there needed to be a, a better fuel source, and, and that was coal. 
And if you've ever burned coal before, you know it's very smoky and little smoke particles float into the air. So you can imagine at this time in the 1950s, um, in 1952, London was the most populated city in the world. Um, it was the most industrialized city in the world. And you had more than 8 million people burning um, fires that were fueled by coal, and not just coal, but very cheap coal, because the good coal um, was being rationed, and it was sold by the British government overseas because the British government was essentially bankrupt from World War II. So you have 8 million people burning during a very cold winter day, um, millions and millions and millions of tons of dirty, nasty, cheap, brown, crumbly coal. On top of that, you have 40 coal-fired power stations just in London, which is not a large city. Uh, it's smaller than New York. And then you have uh, 20,000 coal-fired you know, steam engines and, and boats um, floating around. And then, of course, you know, millions of cars with carbon uh, monoxide. And then the government had just discontinued its electric tram system and replaced it with those beautiful red double-decker buses, which you've gone to London and you see all over the place, that are fueled by right. people. So this incredible amount of pollution just on a daily basis is in the air, and people are breathing this in. Of course, on top of that, 80% of Londoners who were adults smoked tobacco at the time. So there's a, a lot of uh, bad fumes. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, on top of all that. And um, uh, so there's a lot of bad stuff in the air, a lot of bad things coming along. A lot of people really had bronchitis and respiratory issues to begin with. And so when the high-pressure weather system sat on top of London, normally these systems sort of they create a lid over a city, and uh, the warm air is trapped below the cold air, and this creates a fog, and, of course, that mixes with pollution, and, it, and it's a smog. So normally these things blow over in a day or two, and this one lasted for five days. There was nil wind, no wind on um, in any area of the city for five days, and it created this, you know, um, horrible effect of, of five days of yellow, putrid, very deadly Ugh. smog that killed um, many people who were over 65 were the most susceptible because, you know, they might have been in poor health to begin with. And, and so we're just dealing with an apathetic government at this point who just wanted the whole problem to go away. And in the middle of this, there's a serial killer <laughs> stalking London, which is my favorite part. I love all of it, but, you know, to, to throw a serial killer in there, um, I think makes it even more intriguing. So was the, um, the serial killer taking the smog as cover and started during that time or was it going on before before and after and um, far after and really in the smog john reginald christie um who in london is fairly well known um because of the famous address in Wellington place where all of these bodies were found so john christie mm -hmm. during the smog is really just someone uh, another londoner who's struggling through the smog and he killed his wife a few days later he actually, in the middle of the smog, went out and resigned from his job abruptly, uh, presumably with the plan that he was going to kill his wife. He was then trapped in the house with her for several days and, and then, you know, killed her. And he had already killed two people to begin with. Where the stories converge is uh, in the following few months, which is, you know, when it became apparent to me that the story, the salacious story of a serial killer 
really um, misdirected the public and the press, particularly from the larger story of, of a, a killer who was going to strike again and did strike again the following year. You know, um, several uh, another thousand people died in the following year, and and there was no public outcry because you know you had these incredible stories about a serial killer that dominated the headlines from March of 1953 all the way through his execution and, and far past his execution also. And so, you know, as I was sort of putting this together, what made me realize was just the way that this happens today. You know, we have a, um, a outlandish tweet from a politician or, again, a salacious story. We are so easily distracted from larger, more important issues like North Korea, like the dismantling of EPA, you know, I mean, there are some right. really big issues that are not sexy. And I would rather right. read about a serial killer than about air pollution, certainly. And, and that's just exactly what happened. So um, it was an interesting juxtaposition between how people reacted with fear and intrigue um, with a serial killer who only killed six people, and yet were uh, completely apathetic to a fog that killed 12,000 and was threatening to kill more people. You know what amazed me about this, Kate, is looking back, you know, you look at Jack the Ripper, but that was, what, 100 years ago or longer than 100 years ago. When you look at this story, the story you're talking about, the uh, December 5th, 1952, so less than 11 years later, on November 22nd, 1963, the Beatles broke worldwide. That's amazing. I mean, this was only 10, this was 10 years before the, the British invasion. That's yeah, like a world right. away. Yeah. Really. That's and, amazing. And it's, a, and it's a time period that I think in some ways is largely forgotten. Right. It's not the Beatles time period. It's not World War II in the 40s. You know, it's sort of stuck in the middle. So um, right. most, most people, if they've heard about it, aside from, of course, people who've heard of my book, have heard about it from The Crown, which is a Netflix series. It's very popular. And the, and Love the small it. Was, yeah, so the small one was, was, was a plot. Was a plot in you know a, a device in episode four of the first season. It was completely factually incorrect, but that's fine. Um, I think most mostly you know. because you know, well, it was, and it, you know, I mean, in this in this episode, it was like uh, Winston Churchill's going to be booted out of uh, Parliament, and everything's going to hell, and that's certainly not what happened. I mean, both sides of the government were very apathetic because it is. It is much easier to pay attention to a clear and present nature like a Looney Tune serial killer who's on the run for a few mm -hmm. weeks than it is to tackle a systemic problem that's going to take decades to solve and, and seems almost insurmountable. And, and coal was. I mean, it was a country that was completely dependent on coal, as were, were we right. for, you know, years. So I think it's, it just, it, it's the same way now. What do you mean it's the same way now? Well, I mean, we have we have a. Um, I think that we have an issue, um, really, in this country, uh, looking at very large issues like climate change, and you know, again, like international policy. It seems so large. I think just to the average American, in some ways, it's easier to be distracted by sort of these small compartmentalized stories, which would be like a serial killer. Than looking at a larger issue. I mean, it's, you know, sensationalized yeah, journalism, yeah. you know, it, it's obviously it's been rooted in history for hundreds of years. Yeah, or how fat Trump is. Yeah. <laughs> no comment. Yeah, the news of the week. 
I mean, honest to God, Kate, and we're just laughing about the fact that people's days are taken up with how much the president weighs. Who right. cares? Exactly. My and God. Meanwhile, who has a finger on the trigger, you know, for, um, for right. uh, you know, that yeah. nuclear war? I mean, it's incredible. <laughs> Yeah. Now, Kay, what the human psyche. So I have a chance because it's smoggy as hell outside and everybody's distracted because their family members are dying. I think what I'll do is start murdering people <laughs> in the smog. What is that? Well, I think, you know, John Christie was um, he, he killed two women about eight or nine years before the smog, and then he killed uh, his wife right after the smog. I think that, you know, it's sort of a, I wish that we had an hour to talk about, you know, all of the, um, the nuances of, of that story, because, you know, really, he was pretty ingenious in the way that he um, killed these women, and it, he used coal gas. He had attached a, he convinced these women to come to his house, offering something and with one it was she had bronchitis from smog not from the 1952 smog but you know in the past she had bronchitis and mm-hmm. he said i have this great yeah. treatment come to my house and he had her breathe in um these you know fumes that were sort of like a menthol that would help clear your lungs and at the same time he had the the um the device attached to his uh gas tap at the back of his stove, oh, and, and it had killed God. And it, and it just it was very smart, uh, you know, which I'm sure your listeners will appreciate. But it, it was, it, and it disabled him, and he was able to assault them and then kill them. And, um, and so it was a very sort of interesting technique that he used. I had not heard of anybody doing that in the past. So, you know, and, and I think that says a lot about the time period also. Um, because, you know, in a, in a time in 1950s, Notting Hill, where Notting Hill was a very depressed sort of slum, a lot of underemployment, unemployment, a lot of single mothers who were, you know, were left alone because of World War II, um, he, was, he was not such a bad option, and there were a lot of abusive men around. And so, yeah, I mean, the, you know, a, a prostitute was willing to come back to his house and basically do whatever he, he wanted her to do in order to get money or, or a place to stay. And, and so I think that's very telling of the time period. The 50s in London were a very complicated, very complicated time. And um, so it's interesting. Anytime you write about true crime, it certainly shines a light on that era, whatever you're talking about, and, and as it should. So, you know, his crimes and what he was able to get away with, and certainly the reaction of the government um, are, are both very telling of, of the way that the, the the state of the mind of the people in London at the time. Do you, is it is it always prostitutes because they're in such a such a dire need of of everything? No, they're easy pickings. They're just easy pickings. Is that what it is? Well, I think also um, I'm sure you all have heard this that you know with prostitutes there there aren't an awful lot of people looking for them, and so it is it is. I mean they're yeah. they're very vulnerable. Um, and all of these women were mothers whose children were being raised by their families, and they didn't have many friends. They certainly didn't have close family members. And uh, the ones who, who um, the one woman who really had somebody come and look for her, uh, you know, was trying to get out of, of being a prostitute. And so it was. It made things very easy, and there were a lot of them in, in Notting Hill. And I think you see that now. I mean, it's difficult 
you know, you, you've read these true crime stories about women being found, you know, scattered on, on highways. And, you know, the presumption is that, that it's a, you know, a, a trucker, a long haul trucker, because they can go from spot to spot and really can't be tracked. And so and I think with every case, it's different. But in his case, he really was able to pick on the women who needed something from him when it was money. And many times they were drunk. So, yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was a vulnerability for sure. Death in the Air, the true story of a serial killer, the great London smog and the strangling of a city, Kate Winkler Dawson. Great, great subject, Kate. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's our pleasure. We'll be back. Tom Bernard Show.